Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to the whirlwind that is stand-up comic Mike Kaplan. Mike has performed on The Tonight Show, Conan, The Late Show with David Letterman, Late Night with Seth Meyers, The Late Late Show with James Corden, in his own half-hour Comedy Central Presents special, and his own one-hour special on Netflix and now on Amazon, Small, Dork and Handsome. He's been a finalist on Last Comic Standing and recently appeared on America's Got Talent. His debut album, Vegan Mind Meld, was one of iTunes' top uh, 10 comedy albums of the year, and his most recent album is AKA. Mike hosts The Fawcett and The Broccoli and Ice Cream podcasts. The ice cream is both vegan and metaphorical. I'd love to know what you think of the episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'd also be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in the idea, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hi, Mike. How are you? Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Good. So we've swapped some messages on Twitter, but it's the closest we'll get to having an in-person conversation. But it's great to see your face and have the chance to understand your philosophical journey. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so in this series of sentientist conversations, we're trying to focus on what I see as the two deepest fun philosophical questions. So one being, what's real? How do we choose what to believe in and the other one is what matters morally and you know what should we care about what we what should we have compassion for and the philosophy i'm working to popularize and develop and build community around sentientism answers those two questions in what i hope is quite a common sense way it says when we're thinking about what's real we should use evidence and reason and take a naturalistic approach to forming beliefs that are you know provisional and probabilistic and always with humility, but hopefully getting less wrong over time. And when it comes to what matters morally, the clue is in the name that we focus on sentience, the capacity to experience things, to suffer, to flourish, and that we should grant moral consideration to all sentient beings. There shouldn't be any type of suffering or any type of experience or any type of sentient being that we should exclude from our compassion. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who both agree with that philosophy and don't. You know, we'll see where the conversation goes. But before we get to those two central questions, it would be great to, if you wouldn't mind, for people who don't know your phenomenal work already, just introducing your life and, and work. How would you best introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you very much. I, these are, it, I, it seems like potentially the only questions like what is and what should be, <laughs> yeah. and then how can we make what should be is. But so I am a stand-up comedian for, let's say, simplicity's sake. I'm many things. I contain, like I wish, man, Walt Whitman got there first. I He contained multitudes and I contain the multitude of knowing that Walt Whitman and then also, I, we look, we all contain multitudes, right? You're not the only... Not just Walt. Uh, now I can, <laughs> yeah, I contain that Waltitude, which is, so that's that's an example of the kind I'm, I'm showing as well as telling that I'm a comedian. Uh, I've been, I started doing comedy in Boston, Massachusetts, United States, uh, Western Hemisphere, Earth, Soul, Universe. 
and I was in grad school there. I went to college for philosophy and psychology and then grad school for linguistics. And while I was studying linguistics mainly, I was around 2002, started doing stand-up comedy at clubs around Boston and uh, then kept doing that. And then I stopped doing that in around March of uh, 2020 or so. And so then, <laughs> I don't know, I forget what happened, but I, I just, I don't remember, I haven't been performing in buildings since then. But yeah. I, I have been, like us all, doing a lot of zooming. But yeah, I've performed stand-up comedy on many television programs. I've, I came to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest with my most recent hour that turned into an album. In I came there in 2018 and released the album this year. And so I... Under ordinary circumstances, for most of the past 18 years, I travel, I make albums, I make comedy specials, and I make podcasts and friends. So happy to be here making a new podcast and friend. Right, likewise. And yeah, I, I um, was prompted to reach out to you because you um, interviewed Jasmine Singer, a previous guest here on your own Broccoli and Ice Cream podcast, which is a great listen. Again, to reassure my listeners and viewers, it's clearly dairy-free Ice cream goes almost goes without saying. Oh yeah! In fact, it's there's no food involved. At, it's all metaphorical. So, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it is just the concept. You can imagine whatever. Like coconut cream is not dairy. So there's the word. What what is? What do words mean? I let's, we'll we'll get into it all right after this. We will. Thank you. So the first question we frame this conversation around is what's real, which as you say is a pretty broad question. But for many people, that's a story about whether they grew up in a naturalistic, atheistic sort of household with scientific mindset or if they grew up in a more spiritual religious context and how that side of their thinking has shifted over time if it has so again you can wind the clock back as far as you're comfortable telling that story I'm happy to. I'll wind it back as far as I can, though I will start around now. For the past year and a half, I have been engaging with a Buddhist friend. My friend Gus is a practicing Buddhist. I really enjoy pretty much everything that I've read about Buddhists mm. and Buddhism about, like, I love Pema Chodron's work and Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, I know this isn't necessarily explicitly Buddhist, but like Ram Dass. So I've started in recent years reading uh, and learning from these sort of writers and teachers and thinkers of of Eastern thought mm. uh, and, and Western thought and the non-dual thought. And specifically in the past year and a half, my friend Gus and I have been reading uh, two books by, it's funny, one of them is prop is, it's a very thick book and it's underneath my laptop making the angle what it is now. So it's a very it's right helpful book. Yeah. yeah, it's it's about Tibetan debate. So these two books about the process of Tibetan debate, which is also involves learning about Buddhist ontology and epistemology, that what is and how we can know what is. And it's like Buddhism, the Buddha has been called like maybe the, I don't know if the first scientist, but certainly a scientist before there was even the concept of uh, a scientist as exists in modern terms. Mm. Uh, and Buddhism, in my understanding of it, as I've been learning about it, uh, is basically 
it, very it, it is completely i'd say it's weird I don't, the word congruous like i feel like we we hear the word incongruous a lot but it's not incongruous with yeah. the scientific method of making observations basically like where some religions are potentially more dogmatic buddhism uh, buddhism is not even like we're a religion buddhism is more like check for yourself like yeah here's some ideas on uh, what we think is uh, a good way to live check out what these folks have said and done and if you want to like test them out for yourself see what it see what happens internally and so some of the not to get into the thousands of pages or uh, hundred, uh, just hundreds of pages. I think this one's 900 pages. The other book was a few hundred. But part of the, like, where it starts from is, like, what do we have access to within our consciousness? It seems like in our visual field, we've got shapes and colors. So they're like, that's pretty much, like, visually, that's what we've got. And then from that, we, I think, impute the existence of other, of types of objects. And there's different levels of existence, like, to the point that the broadest category in, in this Buddhist paradigm that includes all existence and all non-existence they call the selfless i don't know if this is how much i'm uh, not not even non-preaching to the non-choir but like this is something that i only just learned and i'm still you know grasping with beginning to grasp learning and so the idea that everything is selfless meaning that there is no thing that has like a permanent completely intrinsic self yeah that yeah. like I didn't, I didn't always exist. Like Mike Kaplan wasn't before 1978. Mike Kaplan won't be after some point. And in fact, the molecules that I am now are not the same molecules that I was one second ago. Like yeah. the beginning of this yeah. sentence, I, I'm different <laughs> You're changing. Now. Yeah. 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 And that's sort of at least a very rough estimation of the concept of impermanence. And yet also, when we say I'm different than I'll be tomorrow, that I still has some meaning. Like Mike Kaplan has conventional meaning. So yeah, the, yeah. there's a pattern there that still has some you know, coherence and, and meaning, even though you can't perfectly define it or even perfectly delimit it from everything else. Yeah. Yes. And like, there's a Ramdas thing I like. I forget what the exact setup is, but basically it's he's like, sometimes you have this meditative state where you're connected with everything and there's limit, li like no boundaries at all. And yeah. you feel that you we are all one. You are all connected to me. And so then you come down, and you're like, and uh, so we're all one. And that's my stereo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a sense that there, there's levels on which these are true. And like the the Buddhist ontology and epistemology associated with, with Buddhism and also this Tibetan debate structure that I'm learning about, which you don't have to become a Buddhist to learn. It's just this, an alternate kind of logic that can do all the same things that Western logic can do, but in different ways and maybe can do other things too. Who knows? Look, you get, yeah, yeah, whatever logic you want, enjoy your logic. But one of the ways that it frames things is not in terms of true and false, if I understand mm. it correctly, but in terms of what exists and what does not exist. So, for example, like, does is it true that Batman has brown hair? They would they would frame the question as, does there exist 
a Batman that has brown hair? And the answer is no, there it, because there does not exist Batman. Yeah. Uh, like there does exist like the concept of Batman and the image of Batman. And so does the concept or image. And again, I'm not an expert, but there are ways to talk about, oh, Batman's identity is Bruce Wayne. There's a way to say that and get the truth value of it. But I was just engaging with Gus about this, my Buddhist friend Gus, with respect to Batman, Spider-Man, and how you can know things that are true about them in some way that is meaningful, that is not empty, that is not devoid, yeah. even though they do not exist. They are not real the same way that you and I are real, though also, we also do not exist in an intrinsic way that it's I, the idea that we have a, there is conventional reality. There's conventional existence that we have that Batman and Spider-Man do not have. So yeah, I yeah. guess to, to start with, what is real? You and yeah. me more, and then in a different way than Batman and Spider-Man. So where I am now in the journey is part of it is there. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. started, I grew up culturally Jewish, let's say, for, I. Yeah. Uh, it's very, I, I say for simplicity's sake a lot, which uh, may be more for me than for anyone else. But for some people, I could just, I could have just ended it. I grew up culturally Jewish and you'd be like, that's simple. I'm like, let's say that's for simplicity's sake. That makes it a little more complicated. But I was, I would say in my home, religion was not a major shaping force. Yeah. I would say that my mother grew up also culturally Jewish. Her parents were Jewish, but she was not bat mitzvahed. There was not uh, practicing. They didn't go to temple on a specifically regular basis. My father grew up more, I think, in Judaism, there's Orthodox, conservative, and and reform. We yeah. grew, and so I grew up reform, uh, the lightest, the least Jewish of the Jewishes yeah, in, the in the eyes of some. And my father grew up conservative, the the middle. But then for for me, my mom basically, I, I remember a conversation with my mom where she'd said once like, I wanted you to have something so that there wasn't a void that could get filled with a cult, which yeah. I yeah. don't. It's it's funny. I like the say. I feel like I've never thought about it like this before. My mom is also very like nonviolence and and specifically active kindness was focused on. I wasn't allowed to have toy guns. I wasn't allowed to have the Nintendo Zapper or water guns or my GI. I could get GI Joes, but my mom would throw away their guns so they could just yeah. have like you know peaceful treaties with like UN Peace Corps GI Joes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I am also you know as an adult uh, a pacifist, nonviolent vegan sentient uh it's funny sentientism like the idea sometimes an ism means when there's racism or sexism it's yeah. about like bigotry based on these things i mean speciesism sounds very similar to sentientism but speciesism is the the bigotry and sentientism uh the positive aspect of it it seems well i think so but you say that it was interesting because i think the, one of the first times the word sentientism was used was to criticize it as a form of discrimination because some people think that sentientism doesn't go far enough and and if it was there's a chap called john rodman who's more of a i think an ecocentrist who thinks we should have intrinsic moral value in non-sentient things as well so he was saying this sentientism is almost like a discrimination you're discriminating against rocks and trees and rivers and plants and so on and to my mind in a way fine it is a discrimination but it's the only moral discrimination because the only beings excluded don't care because they cannot experience anything and any being that can suffer or experience anything is included so it's a moral form of discrimination if you like rather than uh, 
I, <laughs> I hear you. And I, I wonder if you've gotten into conversations about, because clearly there's a, a spectrum of, let's say, I when I was a baby, I don't, have, I don't have any memories of being a baby. And I would still say that a baby is sentient. Yeah. Uh, but at a certain point, if you go back, you know, is a sperm an egg cell, are they sentient? And if you say no, I don't know what, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if a sperm and an egg cell are not sentient, then at what point does sentience begin? And you have the same kinds of, philosophical questions that a lot of other people have framed in different ways, probably. Yeah, I agree. And we'll, and we'll come back to that in, this, in the second part of the conversation, because in a way, sentientism doesn't explicitly answer that. It doesn't say, here's a list of things that are sentient, or here's a point at which sentience happens. It just says, follow the science. And the science is always incomplete and involving. So different sentientists will disagree over what things are sentient and when sentience are. But it's more the principle of the thing. that If something is able to suffer, then we should care about that. But we'll, For, we'll come for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So there I was. I mean, my home, music was actually the more religious central enterprise. My parents were both music teachers. I was oh, yeah. begun, like in the similar way to, I think, how some families are like, you're going to go to Sunday school. It's just what you do. You're going to learn about our our religion. Perhaps maybe I'm caricaturing this because it wasn't my experience, but my experience was you're going to have violin lessons. You're going to go every Saturday to music school. You're going to have theory lessons and play in orchestras and quartets and have just what you do. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it is. It was not a choice. And so it was something that I grew up in a way at times resenting. I didn't love playing the violin because I had to because I was made to because it wasn't my choice. Mm -hmm. However, I then discovered the guitar in high school and lo and behold i was able to pick it up very easily it's very light and also pick it up metaphorically <laughs> i was able with the finger dexterity and musical theory lessons it was like i i never thought about it like this but <laughs> i just had a funny thought and i'm going to share it the in the Karate Kid, I feel like I was like Daniel, Daniel's son, when he's like, why are you teaching me? I don't want to wax, uh, I don't want to paint, I don't want to clean your house, I don't want to paint a fence. And then when Mr. Miyagi like tries to punch him and says, now uh, wax on, wax off, and he's blocking it, I'm like, why are you making me play violin? I don't want to play the violin. I want to do something awesome and cool. Play the. I was like, whoa, wait a second. This whole thing has been preparing me for a thing that I love. And like, music is what got me into, eventually, a comedy club performing funny songs, which eventually led me to become a, a comedian to have the life that I love now. But this is all to say, so I feel like, and I think that music is such a, it's hard to even describe how meaningful it is, how connected it makes me feel to both listen to it and to create it. Comedy does the same. And for many people, I'm sure different artistic endeavors and for some different scientific endeavors, but this kind of uh, a combination or the idea of like a flow state, the things that bring you into the deepest part of yourself, which is like the same as the deepest part of anyone else, that there is some kinds of almost like almost if not actual like religious spiritual type of communion of the communal feeling of what it's like to just to connect with other human beings, other beings through through this process, this practice. So that wasn't something that I felt as a child, but it was something that was I was not, and I, I wouldn't say indoctrinated into, it was just like, it was, 
I was there and I, I was also religiously offered. I was like, do you, my mom was like, do you want to have a bar mitzvah? It's a party where you get presents. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'd like that sounds very good. And she's like, well, then go to this. So I did go to uh, Sunday school at my synagogue for several years. I'd learned Hebrew. I had bar mitzvah lessons. Again, it was like the game of school. Like I, as a kid, I didn't know why like education was good but i i was just encouraged I, I loved reading and then i loved i was good in school and so i loved achieving because it was nice to get good grades it was nice to win the game that was being offered and yeah. and eventually obviously the goal in life that i now could see like retroactively is like figuring out what game do you want to play or what what life do you want to live what things are meaningful and important what kinds of creations and connections what how do i want to spend my time and part of it is creating comedy creating music part of it is learning about i i did i never loved learning about science or history or those were my i, I was a math guy i was like uh, yeah what are the answers tell me this is how you i feel like math is like the like some games, they're like, this is how you play the game, these are the rules, and this is how you can win. And math seemed at least more like that than like, how do you win history? I guess when it was like all memorizing facts and things, like, like okay, that's, I can plug those answers yeah, in. Yeah, you can tick but the boxes. <laughs> Eventually, in I was in AP U.S. History in junior year of high school, and I turned to my first paper, and I got a bunch of I, I got a, a D because I had all the facts and no concepts. That was, and I was like, but the up until this point, it was all history was all facts, and now it's such a looking back at my me historically, I'm like, oh, what a silly. It's nice to be able to look at myself and think, what a silly fool. Like what a, and it makes sense because that's what wherever we are. Like we, it makes sense how we got there because we are, we have been created by the us from a moment ago, from a moment yeah. ago, from a moment ago, all the way back uh, till we can't potentially remember. And so I, to get to center on, uh, I think the spirit of your question, which is potentially about spirit and I'll do it. I'll do it as much letter and spirit as I can because that's another game I like to play, the letter and spirit of the law game. In college, I think, was the first time that... I feel like my both of my parents have a general sense that there is something that there yeah. that some people might say, like, larger than ourselves, which is, to jump ahead again, what is it that they would say they're... Like, there are words for things, and the words are not the things, and the words that <laughs> yeah. we use, like... When, if you ask somebody, do you believe in God? It's important to say, like, what does God mean to the person asking and to the person answering? If I say God is love, yes, I believe in God. If I say God is all of us, then yes, I believe in God. I believe in all of us. If I say or God nature. is the, the universe, God yeah. is, is everything, then yes, I believe in God. And I do believe, I, I think those are valuable, valid definitions of God that are very meaningful to me. And... If personality God. or a, a, an entity that thinks and considers and has power and takes decisions and judges? I would say that in the sense of if you believe that God is everywhere, then that includes in all of us. And that here's a, a joke that I tell sometimes is like sometimes people will see if I'll see it's like a conversation between two people. If somebody's I feel like the universe is telling me to do something and the other person's like, 
isn't it possible that it's just your brain that's telling you to do that? And my brain is part of the universe. <laughs> yes. So we're like Alan Watts says, we don't come into the universe. We come out of it. Like it's not us and them. It, it, it's all us. It's yeah. all this. It's all universe, like all the way down. Like it's all just a turtle made of universe or a universe <laughs> made of turtle. And and so the idea, I don't believe that there is a specifically separate yeah. thing. I know, I believe that you're over there and I'm over here the same way that sometimes I've also talked about this in my comedy. My pinky is not my ear, but they're both me. Your yeah. Jamie is not Mike, but we're both universe. And, and we're both, in a way, God, if God is universe, that there <laughs> yeah. is God. If, if you believe that there is God within all of us, then we are, you know. I, I grew up with parents that were, I'd say, vaguely religious or spiritual, at least culturally. And then in college, I remember having this thought. Uh, I was a philosophy major and a psychology major. And I remember having like very, I'd say classic cliche philosophy thoughts. Oh, if, what if, what if read to me is not read to you? Or like there was yeah. a kid in one of my classes that was like, prove to me that I'm not an orange. And I was like, <laughs> okay, you're a human and a human's not, he's an like, yeah, sorry. And he, I, I wish I had the wherewithal to, uh, walk away because that was the way to win that debate because yeah. here's a beautiful thing from tibetan debate is that a valid argument uh, technically in this paradigm a valid argument in tibetan debate can only exist between two people who both agree that they want to be having the debate that they're having yeah, uh, yeah. if somebody is not open to receiving even true information, like to what you is like objectively empirical scientific information, like to say to somebody, you know, a cat is a mammal because of this reason, that it, it could be a valid argument to uh, a valid point to make in a debate with somebody who is open to learning that, is open to receiving that, but that same exact concept would not be a valid argument to somebody who doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. And so that guy, I wish I knew that then, but, but I remember thinking specifically with respect to God, like that, that, the first, the thoughts, <laughs> let there be the thoughts about God that were like, if there is, because the story that a lot of people have about God or the story of God in many religions is that God did specific things and that G God is kind, let's say. God is all powerful and kind. And so I had the first thought of like, what? If God is kind and all-powerful, then what is going on? Because have you seen the, the suffering? <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. one thing that I love about the my understanding of the Buddha now is that the Buddha is purported to be omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipresent, but not omnipotent, not yeah. all-powerful. Yeah. If the Buddha was all-powerful, then there'd be no suffering, but the no, the cessation of suffering is possible, but needs to come from within each person's own journey. To, for, there's these, that's the, the Four Noble Truths Cliff's Notes, and I think I've only given one or two of them, but, you know, there's, there's suffering. The, whereas the Abrahamic version tends to be omniscient, omnipotent and what was the other one omnibenevolent yes exactly all at once and the suffering is then mysterious ways oh yeah so <laughs> buddhism definitely does not shy away from identifying that there is suffering yeah, yeah it's a central these... concept to buddhism yeah 
Oh, yeah. yeah. It is the first noble truth that there is suffering. Yeah. And then there's the causes of suffering. And then I believe there's the cessation of suffering and the path to the cessation of suffering, which another thing that I love about Buddhism is that the goal of becoming enlightened is so that you can also help everyone else become yeah. enlightened. And the idea is that if what one fool can do, any fool can do, that everyone can move forward from where they are to hopefully increase happiness and decrease suffering for perhaps first themselves and then extending outward as, to as many beings as possible, ultimately all. Yeah. The, the process of Tonglen meditation is one where, if I understand correctly, the idea is to take in suffering and to breathe, breathe in suffering and breathe out release and relief to sometimes starting with yourself, but then also for the anxiety that I'm feeling and also for all the people that are feeling this anxiety, for all the beings that are feeling this, you start maybe with somebody that you love. I wish you happiness and the roots of happiness. And then you go to somebody that's neutral and then maybe somebody who annoys you a little bit until ultimately you can hopefully like wish the happiness and the roots of happiness and the elimination of suffering and the roots of suffering for all beings yeah, genuinely so. universal compassion yeah yes. and, and did as you went through those sort of philosophical questions did you ever have a point where you really felt that like you were kicking back against religious concepts or was it more that they just faded away a little bit um i definitely felt like i was kicking back also a quick thing that i learned recently in this buddhist paradigm love and compassion are defined if i understand correctly love and just to let, let me say i'll put a footnote on everything like i might be getting this wrong because i'm not an expert i'm not a divinely enlightened buddha yet i think yet, we're all yet. yeah <laughs> we're on our ways and like i'm not a fully fledged adult yet but i'm partially fledged so the definition of love is de to love someone is to desire for their happiness to increase and to have compassion for someone is to desire for their suffering to decrease so love and compassion go together to that's basically the goals for all beings to increase yeah. increase happiness decrease suffering so back to college where I was like, how could this guy, I, I basically was like, I remember thinking at one point, the af it's like the afterlife is something that is often, I think, conflated with the idea of, of your religion, like the idea of what do you do now and also what happens later? Those are the main yeah. things. Like, And I was like, I know about now and I don't know about later. And I'm like, maybe, like, I was like, I don't know what happens after I die. I was like terrified of death when I would think about it. It would infinitely spiral and be like, but me not existing, but me does exist. Me always, yeah, yeah. all I know is me. But, and then it was eventually calming to remember, oh wait, but like when I'm asleep, I don't know me exactly. And when I, before I existed, I didn't. And I don't think I was terrified. I don't remember being terrified because I wasn't terrified. Like, oh, I think you can only be terrified when you're alive and awake. I think maybe when you're asleep and also maybe when you're dead, but I don't know. And maybe when you're preborn, but. <laughs> I remember thinking like 50-50, if there's no evidence for or against an afterlife, I was like, why not just for now, believe the one that makes me feel good. The one that thinks that my consciousness will continue to exist in some form, which I now have come back around to believing in a way that the same way, like I'm not the same consciousness that I was yesterday, but I'm a continuation of it. The me that wakes up, like I've asked, and I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I know that 
there's many Buddhists and the Buddhist party line is that reincarnation exists, that yeah. rebirths exist. And I'm like, like how, who is it? If there is no permanent self, then who is it that is even reborn? And like, if there's no permanent self, then who is it that wakes up today that went to sleep yesterday? If there's also some, okay, f fair enough. I don't understand everything yet, but at a certain point, I became atheist identified. Like into my 20s, I was like, just because I want something to be true doesn't mean that it necessarily is true. Yeah. There are things that are like, believe you can, believe you can't, either way, you'll be right. If you believe in fate to the point that like, what does it matter what I do? If, I just, if I'm just fated to lie in my bed all day, then I'm just gonna lie in my bed all day. But if you got up and left, like then that wasn't what you were fated to do. So I think that fate only makes sense to think about looking backwards, to be like, oh, look, it it had to happen this way because it did happen this way. It couldn't, maybe in another universe, it could have happened another way, but here it didn't. So if that's valuable to you, like I, I think that on the subject of free will, uh, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but my understanding of it from a limited perspective is, ma'am, I can't wait to get that unlimited perspective, but <laughs> from a limited perspective, let's say it for shorthand, free will doesn't exist, but it makes sense to act as though it does. And there's, a, there's an old tweet of mine that I, I pulled up in advance of this that I think a few years ago I tweeted and every once in a while I retweet it. Here's things to remember. One, you exist. Two, you matter. Three, others exist. Four, others matter. Five, maybe nothing is real. Six, act like it is just in case though. And that's my, I guess my philosophy in a nutshell with respect yeah. to all this, but so the, there I was atheist identified in my twenties. I'm like, now if I like, very scientifically minded, if I don't have proof of something, then I, I will probably not be as likely to believe it. And I, and it it's about, okay to say, we don't know. That's fine. Or, yeah. You can suspend belief until there's some evidence. Yeah. And here's the thing is, I think that I was the, the being good at school game that I was trained, trained in as a youth was such that it was to me, at least internally, I'm like intellectually, yes, it's good to say you don't know when you don't know. It's good to acknowledge at least to yourself that you don't know when you don't know. And externally, I did not act that out all the time. I was definitely I'm like, what do you mean? I look, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who knows things. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But ultimately, I was like, yes, I don't know. There's thing, There are things that I don't know. And for sure now, a thing that I know is that in the past, there were things that I don't know because I am a limited being, a flawed human, a fallible individual, like a bunch of molecules that I don't even know which molecules are going to be in me <laughs> later. For sure, I don't know the future. Like I got... I can make some guesses, but a thing I like is uh, people who have knowledge don't make predictions and people who make predictions don't have knowledge. I'm like, I want to have knowledge, so I'm going to stop making predictions. I predict that I'm not going to make a lot of predictions, just <laughs> ruin that one. But the thing that I guess the final piece of the story that brought me from atheism to where I am now, which is... I think maybe pantheism, panentheism, mm. like there is God in, like, if there's, like, the thing, like, if no one is special, if everyone is special, then no one is special. Like, that idea gets bandied about. And I think it's provably false in a mm. way that is, it, it make, I understand the logic to it, but take the X Men. They don't exist, but a, 
if they did, and in the world in which they fictionally do, the team is all mutants. They're, each one of them is a mutant, but each one of them is a mutant in a different way. So they're all special. And also that doesn't make them each not special because one of them can shoot lasers from their eyes and one of them can heal from anything. And one can create weather things. And to, to our reality, like that's true of all of us. Each of us is unique each of us yeah. uh, is completely distinct from everyone else and oh if everyone's unique then no one's unique yeah no one's unique in no one is the only unique person but there's a level confusion going on here and so i think that similarly to tie this back to god if i was i went from a place where i was like there is no god specifically there's no the specific gods that I had learned about that I had yeah. heard of that created things of those in gods. an anthropomorphic yeah. kind of way. But I was like, it's not the framing of it made. So I was like, if there's no God, then why not just say that it's all God? So it's essentially everything is God. Everyone is God. And it's it is as not meaningless as saying that everyone is special and that everything or anything can be sacred, which brings me to my experiences with psychedelics. That when I was like in my mid twenties, I, I did mushrooms for the first time yeah. and I had an experience that was like, oh, if there is like if there is God, if there is the possibility of enlightenment, then perhaps this is a step toward this is a I know more now like about what steps I could take towards understanding these concepts, these words, these ideas that like it, I sincerely remember reading. Oh, man, I've been thinking about this philosopher Raymond Smullyan a lot lately. And he has a, the first book of his I read is called This Book Needs No Title. And then another one is What is the Name of This Book? He's a philosopher, a logician, a a magician and uh, a professor. He would go on The Tonight Show and do magic tricks. And he was just this really wonderful character, a real human being as well, a, a factual character. And specifically, I remember reading a story of, I think it was in the book, This Book Needs No Title, called Planet Without Laughter, I think yeah. it was called. And have you heard of this planet with the, the basic plot of planet without laughter was that they were like, imagine a world much like ours, but that people didn't know. Most people didn't understand what laughter was or they, they knew that it existed. They could see people doing it, but they didn't know where it came from or how to naturally produce it. So yeah, some people would yeah. try to fake it. But imagine somebody just being like, ah, ha, 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 am I doing it? If you know what true laughter is, you can more likely spot what not true laughter is. And that there were in the story, there's these laugh masters who are trying to help other people like learn what laughter is. And people would be like, so tell me, what are the physical? mechanics of it and they're like no that's not it and they do yeah. some backflips and then sometimes when they do some backflips they were basically like the analogy is to zen masters that some people in the audience would be like oh that they had a realization a flash of enlightenment the enlightenment oh i understand what laughter is and i remember reading that story for the first time in my early 20s and being like this is a fantastic story and i do not have a reality to map it onto i was like i get the part about laughter but i don't get the part about mysticism i don't get the part about yeah. zen i and then after doing mushrooms i was like oh 
now, now I, I understand it. the rest. At least I understand what the rest of the story is about in at least a partially real way. Like it's hard to talk about without saying I'm not saying that I'm a completely, permanently, divinely enlightened being, but I am saying that I know a little more having had that experience than I did before, which I hope is not too arrogant to say that I had an experience and now have a different point of view based on additional acquired data points. And I think from the people I've spoken to, one great way of understanding how limited your own perception and your own mental capacity is to shift it in a radical way and mushrooms is one great way of doing that. So whatever, whether you learn something fundamental from the experience you go through, one thing you definitely learn is how radically your perceptions can be shifted and your, your understanding of reality can be shifted. You're almost reminded that in a way we are limited, evolved biological beings that happen to have certain facilities. And why should they have a perfect understanding of reality? It would be surprising if they did. And also to once, even if you have a radical shift, be like, it's, it might seem, oh, this is it, but it's the fact that you've had, a, if there is a radical shift, now that radical shifts are possible, and to the point that they're, yeah. like, you're now open to potentially even more radical shifts, personally, interpersonally, emotionally, creatively, professionally, societally, hopefully, culturally, and... I So some years later, I would do mushrooms a few times a year. Sometimes it's just fun. Sometimes there's insights. Sometimes there's like when I, I record things in this, this digital recorder that I have for jokes and ideas and things like art nuggets of all kinds, lyrics, just thoughts for my journal. And like when I would go, when I would go on a mushroom trip, like with friends or with myself, I would come back with 64 ideas and yeah. like 32 of them wouldn't make sense. And th 16 of them would be great jokes. And 16 of them would be like, oh, that's a nice thing to remember. Was it always um, exactly that ratio? <laughs> that I would say probably <laughs> not, no. I think. Yeah. But I, and I don't, I never, I'm glad actually that I never specifically kept track because I think that would have been like yeah. one of the, one of the challenges during uh, a mushroom trip would be when was it important to leave the moment to record the moment uh, to yeah. be like, this is so beautiful. This is so meaningful. This is so funny now that I'm going to want to have this later as, or to remember this later, to have access, to remind myself and that's still an ongoing question of I'm glad that we're recording this, but even every once in a while, while like what earlier when I said, Ooh, this is a fun thing that I've never said before. I picked up my recorder and recorded <laughs> it separately, even though we are recording this. I'm like recordings within recordings. That's a recording. I, yeah. So ultimately, it, oh yeah, please. Yeah. And it, but it feels, it's a fascinating story because one, I, Part of the reason in the in this idea of sentientism, I don't really talk about atheism or God or de deities that much. I tend to focus more on uh, naturalism and just a way of understanding the world through engaging honestly with reality. And for me, even though I've got quite a hard-edged sort of materialistic, naturalistic view that to some people can seem quite sort of cold and unemotional, and there's a spreadsheet of facts and so on, that's not the reality at all. So through even that completely naturalistic way of thinking, I think I feel a very similar sense of awe and wonder and connectedness with the universe and many of the things that would be described by someone who's having a religious experience. And I think that echoes through a lot of the experiences you've had that some people 
whether from a religious perspective or through experience with mushrooms or something else, will that will lead them to think there's something genuinely supernatural, something magical, something external, some being or some deity that is outside of reality. Whereas for other people, they'll have very similar experiences, but it just leads them to a radical open-minded about the nature of reality rather than thinking there's something outside of it. So there's a humility, there's an open-mindedness, there's an understanding that our perceptions and our thinking are always going to be limited in some way. But there's still a distinction there between something that's supernatural and handed to you versus a sort of open-minded naturalistic understanding that can still include a lot of wonder and awe and cosmic oh, yeah. connectedness, if you like. And uh, the, when I was atheist identified, I, I went. I remember going on Pete Holmes's podcast. I don't know if you know the comedian Pete Holmes. No, uh, but he, has, he has a wonderful podcast called You Made It Weird. And uh, I've been on it twice. Once earlier on, I think when he was more of a, a wonder of there's got to be something like, what is it? What, you know, and yeah. it's, he's, I do think interlude briefly, there's a thing that I like this. I forget where this quote comes from exactly, but it's the idea of keep your feet on the ground, have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. Like it's not that there's something magical at the expense of, oh, there's only things outside of my physical being at least, but that my physical being that on the ground, it is important to care for people, care for beings, and also like to grow inward and as outward as possible, expand the comfort zone, expand the, the circle of care, whether it's metaphorical, metaphysical, purely physical, whatever, emotional, whatever it can be. So I'm talking to Pete Holmes, I remember. Oh, so I think head on head in the clouds and feet on the ground is either the Buddha or th the band 311, I'm pretty sure. And maybe <laughs> both. both. We're all one uh, at a certain point. Yeah. And I remember talking with Pete about about atheism, which I was very entrenched in the concept of at the time, but in in the same way that you just described, like there's, it seems like there's definitely this. I don't know outside yeah. of now, outside of here, but I'm like this plant, I don't know about heaven, but I know that we can do our best to make earth as heavenly as we can, that we can make our neighborhood, our community, our family, our country, our world, our, that there are these beings that see, it seems to me that there are beings outside of myself. If there aren't, then it, what a, what an amazing trick. What an amazing. I can just see a screen here. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I believe I have faith in your existence. I have faith Thank in you. a lot of people's existence. The evidence speaking. is reasonably strong, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're saying things that I like that I don't think I could have made up, but about your experience, I, I don't think I could do your accent. So <laughs> not very well at all. I don't call it telly. I don't call it post prod um, or prod. The <laughs> so I'm, I remember having that conversation with Pete. Yeah. And then uh, several years later, I returned and I had in 2014 or so, I think is the first time that I engaged with the I with ayahuasca, which I'm not sure yes. if you're familiar. It is a plant medicine, let's say, yeah, for simplicity's sake. And sometimes it's called a sacred plant meditation. And the guide that I've gone to will say it is a sacred plant, but also that everything can be sacred. Like these, I feel like the themes arise that in most of the the people, the wise people that I've met, or the people who know 
know what they're doing in their life. Yeah. I know that I've practiced the violin and the guitar a lot, so I know a fair amount about the violin and the guitar. I know this man has worked with these plant medicines for a while, so he knows a lot about how to create and offer plant medicines that then people can have experiences within their own consciousness that he the guide will the guy that I go to will say it doesn't make you more powerful it doesn't it doesn't the thing that it does do is helps you learn like where you are like like a spiritual gps which is fun because one time i was uh, typing that i was heading somewhere and i was like my gps says i'm going to be there in 7 minutes and but when i typed to a friend gps it auto corrected to god so <laughs> the but the idea of a spiritual gps of it doesn't tell you I think he says even who you are, but where you are, and it will help help you see what are the things that are important to look at in your own life, in your relationships, in it's different for everyone all of the time, but it was another extremely meaningful series of experiences for me to do these ayahuasca ceremonies, which I think have led me not to leave the physical world and the care that I have for it, but to potentially, hopefully, be more present in it, to feel that, oh, like, sometimes I feel that there, that I am love or that I am capable of being yeah. and being a conduit of and expressing and caring and sharing that in the ways that I can, which sometimes involves talking and sometimes involves listening and sometimes involves acting and sometimes involves sending money and sometimes involves refraining from things and sometimes involves meditating and sometimes involves going on podcasts and sometimes involves relaxing for a second. Those are not captured on podcasts as frequently. Yeah. Ah, but there's one other, one other useful, I think, uh, story that I want to share briefly, which is a rabbi, friend of a friend, who I'll say is also a friend now, but my, my friend Zach, one of my best friends in the world, grew up with a rabbi as a mother and with Judaism being much more present uh, yeah. and substantial and significant in his life culturally as well as perhaps more. And he shares lots of stories with me and he has a rabbi friend, Rabbi Kligfeld, who shared, he did. He had a sermon that I'm going to paraphrase the, the main points of and I hope not to do him a great disservice. And I know that he cited various sources of like, it's all, I feel like, Want to, we want to always give credit where credit is due, and uh, a new thing I've come up with is, and debit where credit is don't. And so I don't want to take credit for this, and I'm sure that Rabbi Kligfeld would say, and also I don't want to take credit for all of this, but the this is where the ideas came through from someone to Rabbi Kligfeld, to Zach, to me, now to you. You can at and, least take credit for sharing it. Yeah, this, I'm going to, here's, this is me talking. I'll say that. And... I'll take responsibility for it, if nothing else. The idea, there's a, an image of, let's say, a sheet or a wall uh, beyond which on the other side, like we're on one side and on the other side is the truth or God or the light source, love, everything at the beginning, pre-Big Bang, post everything, all through, you know, whatever that is for you, the everything, the allness, the oneness, the isness, like the light and imagine it metaphorically as a light source, mm. just like all light on the other side of this, this perhaps thin barrier and that there are holes in the sheet, in the wall. And so if you're far away, you can see that there are many holes. And if you get close to one hole, you 
get like a a brighter dose and you can get as close as you can like without going through uh, you can get closer and closer and each of the holes might represent a different faith tradition yeah. there's a judaism hole a, perhaps a buddhism hole there could be a science hole there could be an ayahuasca hole there could be and so part of uh, the part of the point of the thing was also connected to monogamy and how powerful monogamy can be that like you can always with one partner go deeper and deeper and i'm a person who has also in the past identified as a, a polyamorous person as mm. a non-monogamous person yeah um for uh, various reasons of like oh like increasing happiness increasing pleasure in it goes along with veganism like decrease the suffering and increase the capacity for joy and though i now am in a a wonderful loving like my longest and i'd say highest quality and quantity wonder i've had wonderful relationships but this is the one that is now that i've been in for Almost, I've been in for almost five years and I, I love it. And I want to keep going more and more in. I want to keep looking through like the hole in the wall at the, the light and love of this relationship, which also helps me be loving in other aspects of my life to other human friends and non-human friends, to family and in just other beloved beings, which on the grandest scale is all beings. And then in the specific is like who I'm with now and who I can impact in in my daily life, in my yearly life, in my public life, in my private life, in my professional and personal life. Uh, and so it, it now I feel like all of these things are potentially helping to fuel. Like I think Picasso said a thing that's the about the the purpose, the meaning of life and the purpose of life or the function, like something about the first part is like to discover your gift, and then the second part is to offer it yeah. uh, and yeah. to help others. And I'm still in the process, like I'm still in a discovery process. And I'm also, I'm like, sometimes I have fortune. I'm, there's so many things that I'm grateful for. I have resources. I have a home and some savings. I have a, a career that helps give me money for rent and food and to care for my, my loved ones. And then also more to help care for, like beyond myself, beyond my home, beyond, uh, and so I like the, the idea that when you're looking through one of the holes, it seems like this is the truth, that yeah. this is the way, and they all are potentially metaphorically fingers pointing at the same moon or paths up the same mountain. And I think you say you don't talk about necessarily God deities explicitly, but the idea of most the, at the, the idea at the core of most organized religions and most perhaps disorganized religions, the seed of it is love and compassion yeah. and care for the self and others, for, yeah. you know, forgiveness, compassion, atonement, all these things to help help everyone increase happiness and decrease suffering. So I think that's I think that's the answer about my journey. Oh, I love it. I love it. And the and that's the link we're interested in, right? There's the what's real and, you know, and how do we form those beliefs and how do we stay open-minded about that stuff and explore it? But then there's what's what matters. And you've sort of covered, come onto that topic already because I think you're right. In, in, in all of the established religions, there's a really rich vein of compassion, right? There's genuine concern for the other and for suffering and for flourishing that runs through all of them. And I think it predates them as well. Arguably that, you know, rudimentary morality existed even before humans came on the scene and still can continues in other species today where there's 
kin relations and reciprocity and tribal and group relationships and and so on. That Elephants least, mourn their dead. Absolutely. So in a way, that's not that's not rocket science. And I think that's partly why it flows through all those religions, because it predates them all as well. And arguably, movements like humanism and sentientism are going back to that compassionate root, but without having any of the supernatural stuff layered in too. And there are different varieties of what you might broadly call religious experience, of course. And some of them I think the things you've been exploring feel very much about the nature of understanding the world, but they are centered on that compassion and that breadth of compassion and that concern for others and that love. But there are often, certainly within many formalized religions, a a very different way of thinking about ethics that is more focused on defining good and bad by the instantiation of a fictional deity or a list of particular rules and we see even today how sometimes those religious supernatural systems can actually warp compassionate ethics and make the, make the compassion conditional. I will have compassion for you if you believe the right things, but not if you don't believe the wrong things. It might lead to sexism, homophobia, various forms of discrimination based on traditions that were around when the guy who wrote the book <laughs> 2000 years ago wrote the book. Um, so in a way, that's Many people who move away from a religious worldview, partly it's evidence and reason, and it just doesn't feel like there's evidence to support it. And it feels like it's more of a human fictional creation for other people. And it was a bit of a mix with me. For other people, it's more of an ethical thing where they're saying, look, you're really saying homosexuality is a sin. And you're really saying, you know, that Muslim child will burn in hell for eternity because they don't believe in the right side of God. And so there's almost an ethical thing that makes people go, "Uh, hold on a minute. But many people will leave a religious worldview for those reasons because they want that deep compassion. And other people will stay in a at least a loosely spiritual worldview because they don't want the warped ethics of a formal religion, but still want to center their thinking on that broad compassion and still have that open-minded sort of sense of transcendence and connectedness as well. So there's multiple different routes of that people find through that. And it, it, one of the things that's interesting in your journey is You've talked already about that breadth of compassion. Some people talk about it as a moral circle. Some people don't like the idea of it being a circle. But it's a, it's a scope of moral considerability, if you like. Who do you care about? And you talked already about family, friends, humanity as a whole, and even going beyond humanity. I don't want to drag you on for too long. But it'd be interesting to know how that story evolved as well, and particularly at what point you took the moral importance of non-humans Seriously, oh, sure. and is, is that a you know driving factor in your veganism? Because obviously there are many reasons people go vegan. But. Oh, yes, 100%. What if I was just like, short answer, yes. But <laughs> long, long answer coming. I also, I do want to say one other brief thing connecting this, that what, there's a, a woman who's a very good friend of mine who is a minister who used to be a comedian. We met doing comedy in Boston and now has a church in Chicago called uh, Gilead Chicago, named before The Handmaid's Tale came out on Hulu. Yeah, uh, and, <laughs> talking uh, of warped ethics, yeah. yeah. But the uh, the balmish Gilead, uh, the one that's uh, meant to be. But uh, I love, when I went to this church, when I was visiting Chicago, because my friend is a wonderful person and a wonderful storyteller, and the church is a queer storytelling bar church. And it's like, the when I went there and just had this, a communal experience, literally communing with this community, community and the the stories were beautiful the sermons like there and they care about when i i used to uh date this woman as well and when we were dating i was atheist identified and she was christian identified the the specific the kind of christian that i felt was 
as close to my understanding of Christ-like that caring yeah. for the downtrodden, like helping feed people, caring about, you know, marginalized folks, transgender people, queer people, yeah. you know, anti-racist, you know, that like these, they're- Universal compassion, real compassion and love, yeah. The, the point, listening <laughs> What's to supposed to be the point, the, yeah. The, yeah, the word. And I, yeah, I would say actually, yeah, the point. And, but I remember thinking at the time and perhaps saying to her, I'm like, I feel like you and I have the same views like of how to live in the world. Like what the, the idea of like religions offer potentially ethics and metaphysics is a way I've heard it put. Mm. And, and we both think, I think that there, there's a poem in a book of, I think it's called Heretical Jewish Poems, called Is, by another, a, a friend of mine who is both uh, a rabbi and a uh, Buddhist, or at least has taught Buddhist meditations and things as well. I don't want to put words in people's mouths or outfits on people's bodies that don't necessarily fit them. But so in this, in this book of poetry, I should really memorize the exact point that I'm paraphrasing, but the point that this is basically a, a rabbi talking and in this poem says, I would, I have more in common with the atheist who dances than the person who sits in the pews, like mouthing the words, but not connecting to them in that same way, which I think the same thing that, you know, I see and hear and understand from you and your experience is you might be, you're metaphorically the atheist who dances that is <laughs> dancing the same dance, singing the same song as whether like scientifically being, we, we should be compassionate because of science or we should be compassionate because of a deep seed of, you know, love that is God that exists within each one of us. Like ultimately the ethics, like I would rather if I would rather somebody do the ethical thing for any reason, do the kind thing, the compassionate yeah. thing for any reason, than to be, and I think that that is the point of of not only religion, but also, as you say, like life, and hopefully being human and being even greater than human, more than human, just being, the point of being is to be loving, perhaps. And so to get back to the church, yeah, so I was, I said to my, uh, my my ex, my my partner at the time, my now friend, now minister, I think then about to go into divinity school. I was like, we're basically the same, you and me. Like ethically, we're doing the same thing. The only difference is like on the on-off switch, the binary of Jesus or no Jesus. I'm like, no Jesus, but to me, what is Jesus? Doesn't even doesn't even matter. Like we're we're doing the important thing. And she's like, I don't know if that's the way that I would put it, but and so now I I understand I, similarly to the experience that I had when I first did mushrooms and understood that Raymond Smullyan story, like I do understand why it can be valuable to be like, oh, like if Jesus is the story that is meaningful to you, if Buddha is the story that is meaningful to you, like story doesn't necessarily mean false. Like there are true stories and there are, and there are fairy tales and there are, there's power to what stories we're telling ourselves. And it, it doesn't matter to me what Jesus literally did. It doesn't matter to me what Buddha literally said. In fact, I've heard that the Buddha said things that he couldn't have possibly said if he said other things because they conflicted. And then the thing that somebody would say about that is, well, whichever one seems resonant and powerful and valuable, and it doesn't matter who said it, if it's good, then live by it. Yeah, and he also told people not to listen to him. I think. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. And he said more specifically, don't just listen to me. Yeah. Like if you want to hear what I say and test it out for yourself, Te don't do something just because I say it, do it because you find it valuable to do perhaps having done it. So, which is another, 
Oh, so to, to answer your question, finally, I remember my journey into veganism is, I think, perhaps simpler. That, And I think that in high school, I remember I was raised by parents who ate meat. We grew up in the United States, which mostly eats meat. And I'd heard of vegetarians. And I, in high school, had the first inkling of if I could, then maybe I would, but I didn't have any sense of how I would. I didn't cook my own food. I didn't know that there there weren't as many like vegetarian restaurants at the time, at least not in my awareness. I know that Veganism, the word, I think, has existed since the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, and of course, veganism, the concept, has existed for much longer than Many that. Many thousands but, of years, yeah. <laughs> but without, it was just the way that various peoples were. And man, I, I just learned recently about, do you know, Dick Gregory, the the comedian who was an activist in so many ways, and I believe was vegan for 50 years or so from like the 60s, because he saw it as essentially the same str struggle for civil rights of all essentially sentient beings. Yeah. So he his story is amazing. Like I just did some research into him when somebody was like, who do you want there to be a movie about? And I'm like, I looked, I was like, oh my God, He's basically the, the struggle for racial equality and the struggle for the care for animals from him, a black man in the 60s. I'm like, so yeah, incredible uh, ahead of its time. And also, I don't want to do a, an a disservice like of his time at his time. I also like that in the background, every once in a while, there is the barking of a sentient being. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's definitely a sentient being. You're right, Luna. Luna, <laughs> what's up? You're going to come and make an appearance? <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> ah, wonderful. But so in high school, as a teenager, I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if I could live in a way that animals didn't have to die? And I like, don't know how to do that. So I'll keep eating, you know, burgers and hot dogs and pizza because I then I got to I went to Brandeis University for my undergraduate college experience. And in my sophomore year, I was about 19 years old, and I forget the exact chronology, but I was still thinking about these things, and I read, I think, an article by Peter Singer, the, uh, for those that know him, the famous ethical philosopher, for those that don't know him, a guy is an ethical <laughs> philosopher, and I, I eventually read a lot of his his work. There was a, like a greatest hits that collected, he's written so many things about, he wrote a book called Animal Liberation, which was like one of the seminal books on like the animal rights movement as it exists, I think, in my Modern times. He's written books about the beginning and ending of life, about euthanasia, about- Mike, uh, can, yes. I'm really sorry. Give me one second. Stay on. I'm of just going to go get a sentient being and see if I can work out what's up with it. Give me a second. You got it. You got it. <laughs> there she is. Oh. Look, there's Mike. Hello. Say hello. Luna. I need you to get off my headphones for a second. <laughs> uh, my, uh, the other sentient being that lives in my home, my girlfriend, Rini, also just emerged from our bedroom <laughs> and loves looking at these types of sentient beings as well. So she's uh, very welcome to come and say hello. You're right there, Luna. Oh, so sweet. Right. Should we put you down now? Right, here we go. Um, right, sorry, carry on. Oh, no, all good. So Peter Singer. <laughs> she uh, knew you were talking about non-humans. So it's the most relevant things that I read were about the essentially 
the idea, actually, that sort of ties together everything that we're talking about, that sometimes people think about philosophy itself as like this lofty, otherworldly thing, this ethereal, like, oh, what is and why and who can say? And it can be these things. It can be like imagining thought experiments and things that cannot be known. But in certainly in ethical philosophy, and this, I think Peter Singer makes this point, is the, the first time that like explicitly he's like, ethical philosophy is not only about what could be, but about what should be. Yeah. And it is not only, it's not enough to read about it and think about it. It is important to do it and live it and apply it. I think there's a book, one of his books is called Applied Ethics. Yeah, and Practical I was like, Ethics, maybe. That might be it, yes. Yeah. Maybe he's written more than one book. Could that be has both, yeah. in the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, and I remember, so 19 years old, reading these types of things and like with my, you know, the desire within me to do less harm. Yeah. I And then finally in a place where at, in the dining hall, there was a vegetarian station and there, there obviously there were always salad bars, but I didn't know, like, I just, I'd never made the step to be like, I can't, I want to, but I, and I can mm. try. And I, and so I gave myself also permission to fail. I was like, what if I try being vegetarian? And if it doesn't work, then I can stop and <laughs> no harm, no no harm, no foul. Well, no, go back to harming foul. But I, I, I remember learning more about, I hadn't, they didn't have a very wide palate when I was growing up mm. or I wasn't like my family ate certain things. We ate like for ethnic foods, there was Italian and there was Chinese food. And then there was basically American food, let's say, you know, I'll say boring American white people, suburban food, our family's experience. Well, like we, we had what we had, we liked what we liked, but in college, I, I went to an Ethiopian restaurant for the first time, a Vietnamese restaurant for the first time. And just started exploring all of the, all these different kinds of Asian cuisines and then also African cuisines and and other European cuisines. Like, I was like, wow. And so some people are like, when you become vegetarian, when you become vegan, doesn't that limit you a lot? And to me, it really opened it up because I'm like, yeah. so many of these cuisines have like vegetable options and it's just different sauces, different spices, different flavors that I was like, this, there's, I eat so much more variety now than I ever did growing up eating meat. And yeah, so it's almost like, like that well, constraint can lead you into so much more creativity. Yeah. Exactly. That's wonderful. I've I've always engaged with that concept in like art creativity, but hadn't really even specifically thought about it necessarily with but yeah, it's exactly I'd say analogous to this. And so there I was in college. Uh, now I was like trying to be vegetarian and succeeding. It, it turned out to be easy. And then a couple years later, more, more reading Peter Singer, more like reading other similar philosophical authors and basically taking the final step or, or at least not the the next step in decreasing the cognitive dissonance of knowing that the meat industry and the dairy industry are inextricably linked that if in an if i'm like meat's no good because of how the animals are treated that the dairy industry is the meat industry like the cow yeah. like the cows are coming from inside the cow or the milk is coming from inside the cow and and so yeah in my early 20s i think around 23 24 is when I was like, same thing, I was afraid. I was like, what if I can't do it? And I was like, better to try and fail to live the way that I want to than to 
not do it because of fear. I'm like, I definitely won't succeed if I don't try. Yeah. And I definitely can succeed if I do try. And then ultimately, it's not even a thing that beef. I remember being like, I'm gonna have to do so much work. Like a joke that I tell on my newest album is like, when I, I really work, I was like, man, becoming vegan, I'm gonna have to read a lot of things and ask a lot of questions and be really annoying. And I was like, wait, that's I'm great at doing all those things. I love all those things. <laughs> this is a natural um, fit for me. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that is what led me to to veganism which is i think the same thing that is at the core of all of the the issues that we're talking about which if what gets you to veganism is like your care for humans and the environment and climate change then wonderful if it's your own health and you're like i think that eating more vegetables and fewer non-vegetables is gonna make you it's like the trolley problem but it's should we get off the track that the trolley is heading on and also bring all the at look should we just yeah. have there be not a track and not a trolley. Yeah, just like, stop the trolley. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a win-win, right? It's, it's, it's somebody, and, and I think you, you hinted at this already, right? There's so much of philosophy that is dealing with fascinating but quite abstruse, weird problems. And but when actually some of the simplest moral questions are actually the easiest. The, the answers are staring us in the face and there are, often aren't even serious trade-offs to make. It's just a win-win all down the line. And of course, there's always going to be someone that's impacted. There are farming communities, there are fishing communities, there are people whose livelihoods are tied up with these things. But yeah, with a just transition and with the right compassion, we can help those people switch and adapt as well. So yeah, some My of these friend, questions just aren't yeah. that hard. <laughs> but, the, but the social norms hold people so tightly into established patterns of what we've been trained to think is normal. Yeah, the uh, two things. One, just be like, of course, there are going to be people and beings that are impacted by the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, I'm going to impact people, then let's not do anything. If I do something, it's going to have effects. Let's do no doing nothing also has effects. And in yeah. fact, like, like when people are not to blow this up into a different conversation, but when people say socialism will lead to these problems, like, is that necessarily? And also capitalism doesn't lead to these problems. Capitalism already has existing problems that perhaps taking steps towards the idea of like socialism, the root of the word and the root of the concept is to care for society, to mm. have a society that where there is, you know, more egalitarian treatment of the beings of that society. But uh, the second thing is my friend Gus, the Buddhist, is also a therapist. And one of the things that he says is, I feel like the joke about therapy is like that, oh, if they cure you, then you stop going. So it's in their interest to not cure you. And Gus has said he's if... <laughs> If business is good, then I'm happy because business is good. And if business is not good, then I'm happy because more people don't need my w the treatment that I can offer them. Uh, I'm paraphrasing in a way. But similarly, I don't want like everyone who has a job to lose their job, but I, I would... I don't want them to lose their job and not have it replaced with hopefully a better job. The uh, green technology can hopefully offer more jobs that didn't exist 500 years ago. They didn't exist 100 years ago. Look at the jobs that people were doing hundreds of years ago, like not even by choice, like the the pride that people take There's ah, in, in like, I work hard at a thing that might not exist in 100 years. And, a, I, like, and people did that. 
Ah, so there, there is progress happening. There is progress possible. I, I don't have all the answers, and that's the answer. Brilliant. <laughs> In a way, that was going to be my final and, I guess, closing question, because I've taken up plenty of your day already, which was, how optimistic do you feel about how quickly we can move to a world where your sort of ethic, which is, to my mind, simple common sense, it's compassionate, it's about love, it's about suffering being bad, <laughs> you know, radical, right? How optimistic are you that we can, you know, continue positive change in the world? Um, a great question. One, one, I don't know the future. Two, it's funny, I am by nature optimistic. Yeah. I think that or by nurture. I, I, I don't know which, but I think by some combination of nature and nurture, I am optimistic. And I'm also, I, I strive to also include in that optimism, realism. Like yeah. sometimes uh, I've been talking with friends uh, and I think maybe Rini and Gus, Rini, my girlfriend and Gus, my friend, I think have both made the point that realism is sometimes what people say it, but they really mean pessimism. They're like, yeah. you know, there's optimists <laughs> and then there's realists. Yeah. And I, I do think that the similarly to the idea of like, believe you can and believe you, or believe you can't, either way you're right, like it's not uh, foolish optimism to believe that change is possible because change is all that there is. Not It's not always specific ideal change in the direction that you'd want it to be. But if you look back throughout history, if you look even at the past 20 years, like gay yeah. marriage wasn't legal, now it's legal in the States. A uh, hundred years ago, a little more than a hundred years ago, women couldn't vote in the States. Yeah. And yeah. now there is a uh, vice president who is a woman. Like, like So I'm not optimistic that it's going to happen the fastest, but the... There's a, a poet named Mark Nepo who's also writes these beautiful sort of spiritual, I guess, short stories, essays, affirmations, meditations, like these beautiful sort of art nuggets. And one of them had this analogy that I like a lot. That's a rose will open, will like grow and bloom and blossom at its own rate. And you can't pull its petals open faster than it's going to go. Like it's going to happen at the rate that it does. And that is the same for an individual's a human's growth. And it's also, I imagine it must be so for a society's growth. And so all we can do is start from, there's a book by Pema Chodron, Start Where You Are. And so we all start where we are individually. We start where we are communally. And I think all, I think that all I can do is continue to do what I think is best in a moment, kindest in a moment to others, to myself, put on my oxygen mask when I need it, and then help, help others, encourage others to put on their oxygen masks in a world where people are like, you can't make me put on a mask, but I'm just trying to offer you oxygen. And, and know that also I did where I started from in this incarnation, in this life was in the United States as a straight, white, cisgender, non-disabled male. Like I have, I have a lot of privilege, a lot of fortune, a lot of a lot of resources. Yeah, uh, I now as a comedian have a larger platform than some do. And so I do my best to help create more joy and eliminate as much suffering as I can. And so I 
I don't know if I can get outside. Like I, I can't know. Like I, I can't tell you what the world will look like in a year, in five years. The internet didn't exist a hundred years ago. So to imagine what the world could look like in a hundred years, it's even somebody once asked me, "Where do you see yourself in five years?" I'm like, I couldn't see myself now five years ago, and that's me who I know and yeah. only five years. So I'll say, going back to the way that I was in college with the afterlife, I'm like, I have no evidence. I do. Have, I have evidence that things can improve. And so I feel like I'm a little ahead of where I was when I didn't know about the afterlife. And I'm like, but I don't know what it's going to be. So why not believe that it can get better, that people can learn more because people are learning more. I think there are more vegans now. I think there are more compassionate people like people you see a lot and you hear a lot of the loud people who are saying things that yeah. you don't want to hear uh, because we can hear more people. It's like we see more videos of, of suffering, of abuse, because we have the technology to shine a light on things that have probably been happening and worse things for so long that hopefully, and I don't mean to be like naive, there's... I. I there is suffering and there is also oh there are ways to hopefully help alleviate suffering and there is joy and there are ways to hopefully help create more joy and help people create more joy and decrease suffering for themselves so i'm optimistic that as buddhism says what one fool can do any fool can do and i think that our world is our world is a fool and it can do it <laughs> It's a great message to close on. Thank you very much. It's been a, a fascinating, wide-ranging, lovely conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll also say that our world is wonderful. How about that? I think that's fair. Yeah. So from one fool to another, you know, <laughs> thank yes. you. Um, so what's the best way of people following you, finding your work, buying your album? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for asking. So my name is Mike Kaplan. Mike is spelled a weird way that makes it hopefully, if you know how to spell it, easier to find me. Mike is spelled M-Y-Q. Kaplan is K-A-P-L-A-N. So if you look for M-Y-Q Kaplan, I'm that on all the social media. I put jokes on Twitter and Facebook and some things on Instagram and some things on TikTok. I have two podcasts, one that you mentioned. Thank you. It might be if people want to start with Jasmine Singer's recent episode. I've also had my mother on recently, my grandmother a few oh, years great. ago. Oh, great. And uh, so the podcast is called Broccoli and Ice Cream. It is of course, metaphorical ice cream uh, and metaphorical broccoli. I talk to people about the work of their lives and the joys of their lives. And uh, one episode comes out for free each week, at least. Sometimes I've been doing two a week. And then one comes out for every free one. One is on Patreon. So you can go to my Patreon, which is also Mike Kaplan. Then I, during the pandemic, began another podcast, which, so I know you said, we usually go this amount of time and we've gone maybe three times as long as that because I don't answer things. I, I It's funny, I answer things quickly, but not shortly. <laughs> Imagine if I talked slower, how long we'd be talking for. It's a good combination. But, uh, and if people listen to this at double speed, they'll be in for a real treat. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And if you enjoy me talking and we're like, get, the, get other people out of there. I started a, a new podcast during the pandemic called The Faucet, where I just turn on the faucet of my stream of consciousness and share sometimes just silliness, sometimes important things, just whatever is happening. That also comes out once or twice a week or sometimes more if I feel like. 
And and my stand up, the thing that is my job, my career, my, you know, the main creative pursuit that I engage in, which has changed in a way in the past year since the pandemic began, but I which I'm doing mainly online now. Over the summer I did a few live shows outside, but mainly th- so far while it's cold where I am, I do a lot of online Zoom shows and Instagram live shows and if you follow me on social media, you'll find out about most of those. Uh, you can go to my website, mikekaplan.com and and my albums my stand-up albums the most recent one is called aka which was based on the edinburgh fringe fest show that i did in 2018 called all killing aside we decided not to call it all killing aside released at the beginning of the pandemic we're like oh this without context make people feel the best way when there's all these the various sufferings that are going on the various uncertainties but it's called All Killing Aside. It's called AKA, as in AKA for All Killing Aside, essentially because the main themes of the album are compassion, love, and not murdering. Those are the, that's what the album is about. It's about the things that we're talking about here. So I think if you've made it to this part of this podcast, then I think you'll enjoy my stand-up because it is, it is me, but it's also me in a curated, honed way, doing the thing that I've been doing for 18, 19 years. And it's, it's my, I think it's my best stand-up album that I've made. And I also have four, four or five other ones that you can check out as well by searching for me. Uh, you, you can stream it. You can download them. You can go to Spotify or Apple Music. You can get physical copies of many of them. I, I have one special on Amazon called Small dork and handsome for many years ago and yeah but i i think if you were gonna engage with one thing i would say get the album aka and but also why not engage with everything so those are the main i think those are the main ways to engage with the things that i put into the world thank you for asking that's great thank you mike and i'll include the links in the show notes so people can click through it's been great to drink from the faucet thank you again so much (laughs) and i'll let you enjoy the rest of your day thanks mike the same to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?